This morning's passages are from Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 42. The first one being Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice on one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, and the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of our Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Then on to Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout, or cry out, or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what the Lord says, the creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a part of the covenant for the people and the light of the Gentiles. To open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and release from the dungeons those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and the new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Good morning. Good to see you. Bring regards from the British Riviera, that's Bournemouth, where we've been on holiday for a few days and then a few days labouring in our backyard, using a bit of American slang there. We have made it through the book of Ecclesiastes, or Ecclesiastes, as they say if you're from Yorkshire. Um, and now we're heading towards Easter. I don't know if it's uh, true, I think it is. I'm a grumpy old man these days, age 42. I feel rested from a holiday. And I've noticed in my grumpiness that it was only about the 8th of January that uh, Christmas stuff was taken away in the Christmas sales and it was replaced with Easter eggs. Now, I think the 8th of January is a wee bit too early to be thinking about Easter. It's all become way too consumeristic. But what would be really helpful for us as we head away from Christmas, as we journey towards spring and Easter, is to journey to the book of Isaiah. That's what we're going to do for the next six weeks or so. And we're going to look at a number of passages that have been called traditionally servant songs, songs of the servant, poetry, prophetic language from the, the quill of Isaiah the prophet, 800 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, that speak ever so clearly about why Jesus came. If you're journeying towards Christmas, you need to look at who Jesus is, what he uh, is like, the condescension of Jesus, Jesus coming down from heaven to earth, the glory of the king constructed into the birth of this infant. If you're journeying towards Easter, remembering Christmas, never separating the two, you need to do something ever so different and think, why did he come? 
What did Jesus come to do? Why did he arrive? And that's what we're going to do from Isaiah chapter 42 and beyond. We read a few verses from Isaiah chapter 40 just to get context in the book. As I said, 800 years before Jesus came, God's people are under the, the heel of a foreign oppressor. They're thinking that God has left them far behind and they are weeping tears. They are sorrowful, they are sad, they are oppressed. And yet a word comes, like a clarion call, like a trumpet sounding, of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. There is a time of comfort coming. This is not a, a man to a woman, or a woman to a man, or a child to a parent. This is God speaking, almighty God speaking, saying there is a time of comfort coming. And that is only going to be a reality because I'm going to do something new. Something remarkable. There's going to be a king who's going to come. There's going to be a king who's going to arrive. But he's going to be a king like no other. And that's what we learn about from chapter 42, verses 1 to 9. Please have it on your lap in whatever form, gadgets, you've got it on. I'd love for you to have the Bible in front of you as we learn about the king who is a servant. Point number 1 from chapter 42, verses 1 to 9. This is the servant king that we're going to look at as we journey towards Easter. He's, he's the servant king. Where do I get that from? Verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 42. Here is my servant, says the Bible, says God. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. Into verse 2. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. Now, to bring justice, to bring justice is something a king does. And uh, verse 1, we have a paradox, we have something strange, a puzzle, a conundrum straight away, because we're told in verse 1, behold my servant. And then we're told from verse 2, this servant is going to do something kingly. To uh, put the nations right, to establish justice, that's a kingly thing that a king would do with the strength of his arm, with uh, the strength of public dialect from uh, verse 2. He would use public reasoning to establish justice in a nation. He would have power. It's the job of the king to establish righteousness and justice. But here's a paradox because verse 1 says, this is going to be a servant king. A king who's going to be a servant and a servant who's going to be a king. Now, how is that possible for a lowly servant to be someone who's mighty enough to establish justice? How is this possible for someone who is lowly to do something majestic and great? How is this possible for a king at the same time, flip it over, to be told that they are a servant? How is that possible? He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. He's not going to use power or the strength of his arm, and yet justice will prevail. How is that possible? just want to reflect on that all too briefly, because we'll see it in later songs as well. One of the things about Princess Diana when she uh, was part of the royalty before she died tragically was that she did things very differently. That's why she got so many admirers. She did a tremendous amount of uh, public work in the public sphere. There was a lot to do with landmines. There was a lot to do with mental health issues that she went and whatever she laid her face to just went through the roof, didn't it? It's a huge boost 
for the charitable organisation that she helped. What was interesting this week as I was out shoveling tons of this and that, I was reflecting on her life. Because it wasn't just what she did in the public sphere. What was striking is what she did that nobody else knew about. Did you know that she went with a few security guards and she went and visited and spoke tenderly and heard the story and held hands with tremendous amount of AIDS victims? Did you know that? Did you know that she snuck out, so to speak, and she worked and served at soup kitchens for the homeless in central London? Did you know that? No press photographers were there unless she wanted them there. She snuck out and she served. Her greatness was hidden. Her Majesty, so to speak, literally, because she was a royal person, was not on public display. How do you feel when you have a famous person, a wealthy person, even a royal person, who puts their status to one side and takes advice or ministers to or listens to or cares for the needs of the lowly? It's a remarkable thing, is it not? How do you feel when you see a great person not acting in their greatness, a majestic or a royal person not acting or wearing the uh, clothes and adornment of their royal status. Every time you see a royal person, a famous person, someone stooping low, you have an echo, just an echo, of the greatest king who became a servant, the servant king. It's the dim echo of King Jesus who was majestic and yet became low, who was the king, who would establish justice, verse 2, and into verse 1 as well. But at the same time, he's a servant, the servant king. The servant king is the one whom we worship as we journey towards Easter. But that's not all. Verse, t or point number 2, he's the healing king. Verses 3 and 4, this is why Jesus came. He's the servant king, but he's also, point number 2, the healing king. Look at verse 3 and into verse 4. In verse 3 and 4, we begin to understand why the servant king came. And we've already mentioned it. But let's look at it more closely. Verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. We need to do a little bit of careful thinking here because some of the English words don't do it justice. There is a word here, bruise. And it doesn't really get the strength of the Hebrew word or the force of it. Got a few bruises this week. A bruise is a damaging, I think. There's a few medical people here, so I speak carefully. I think it's when you have a few cells and they, the blood gets sucked to the surface and you get a wonderful panoply of colours. But it passes in time. This is not the word that is used here. It's far stronger. The word bruised here is an internal death blow. It's not a surface wound that passes. It's not just a breaking of the skin. It's a breaking of an internal organ so it no longer functions. It's a strong word. It's not an external word. It's, it's an internal death blow that the servant king, to become the healing king, is going to have to undergo. This uh, famous phrase from verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break. It's a strange agricultural picture of an upright piece of corn, let's say, and it's not broken in half, so you've got one half on the floor and the other half upstanding, but this piece of corn is now not up straight, it's at 90 degrees. 
All the cells inside the piece of corn are snapped and broken. It's damaged. It can't work. It can't function. It's not healthy. It's bruised. It's had internal damage done to it. Maybe it's by the wind. Maybe it's by a combine harvester. Whatever it may be. But it's damaged beyond repair. And yet, it says here in verse 3, this servant king is going to be the healing king. And broken reeds will be made healthy and whole once again. He's going to have the power to heal. Verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick like a candle or a flame that's just about to go out, he will not snuff out. What is this talking about? This really rich, pregnant sentence. It's talking about the ministry of the servant king who is going to become the healing king. This servant king, the majestic one, is attracted to hopeless cases. He's attracted to broken hearts. He's attracted to people like me and like you. It describes the ministry of the king. Someone who comes down and establishes justice, but does so in a servantly, kingly manner and is attracted to needy and broken and sin-stained people like you and me. People that are so bruised, perhaps it doesn't show on the outside like a bruise does, but in our hearts we are damaged goods and we're very good at hiding it the older we get. But here we have, and all through the Bible there permeates this theme of the ministry of the servant king, who's the healing king, who's attracted to needy and broken people. And he has the power to do something about it. The power to bind up the brokenhearted. The power to heal the brokenhearted and to do us good. It brought home to me a little bit this week when I went to the doctors with one of our kids. They were a bit ill, and so we went to the doctors. Um, GPs are amazing species of the human race because they have 10 minutes in which to do the miracle. I don't know how they do it. They have 10 minutes, and in that 10 minutes, they need to discern, number one, are you telling the truth? Then if they think that you're telling the truth, they need to assess, they need to diagnose, they need to prescribe. And nearly every time they get it right, they do a remarkable job. The NHS is fantastic. Sometimes, very rarely, they may misdiagnose, or they may need to refer and do things like that if it's an area beyond their expertise. But friends, Jesus Christ, the healing king, is attracted to broken people. He never misdiagnoses. He always heals the brokenhearted. He's attracted to those who are battered on the outside or on the inside. He is attracted to the hopeless cases. No one is too far gone or broken or needy for him. But how does he do it? He does it as the divine physician, the divine doctor, the heavenly doctor, and he prescribes his own blood. Look at verse 3. That's not all. With all the compassion of this king, who a bruised reed he will not break in half, a smouldering wick, a candle flame he will not extinguish. It says, in the midst of this compassion and gentleness, the tenderness of this almighty king who comes down, it says, verse 3, he will bring forth justice. Now that's back to the kingly nature of this king. Three times in these verses, verse 1, this servant king is all about justice. Verse 1, he's going to bring justice to the nations. Notice that, verse 3, he's going to be bringing forth justice. Down into verse 4, 
He will not falter or discourage until he establishes justice on the earth. Now, this is getting bigger and bigger in its scope. Do you see how that goes? It's not just from God's people. It's now talking about to the ends of the earth. Now, we're familiar with the word justice for what is termed, I have to look this up, rectifying justice. When someone goes before um, someone with a paper towel on their head, a proper one, if someone goes before a judge for justice, it's because they've done something wrong or they're seeking to give witness to someone who deserves justice. They go before a law court. That's rectifying justice. A a law has been transgressed and uh, punishment has to be given out and so on. They're getting what they deserve. And that's normally how this word is used. But uh, in the Hebrew language, the word mishpat, which is justice, is far richer and wider and broader and greater and grander and deeper and higher than just rectifying justice. It's greater than that. And that's what this is talking about here, is this theme, this servant king, who's the healing king, he's going to establish not just you're going to get what you deserve, It's a far richer and far more encompassing word than that. It's talking about peace. It's talking about shalom. It's talking about wholeness. It's talking about well-being. Something you go for the doctor for when physically you're out of whack. You go to the doctor because you want restoration. If your teeth are causing you pain, you go to the dentist for restoration and wholeness and well-being. But this king, It's not just interested in us physically. The scope is huge. It's global. It's cosmic. What do I mean? Well, if you go to the dentist when your teeth hurt, if you go to the doctor when your legs are achy or something like that, this king is going to sort out not just physical health, but community welfare and societies that are out of whack. And we're not just talking about Brexit here. When classes begin to get friction, one to the other, the upper class and the lower class, when there's an uprising, normally in France because they're French. When genders begin to war about pay, when races begin to have a go at each other, when nations are warring and clashing, it's all about a loss of shalom, a loss of peace. But why? Why is there this need for justice? Why, are there, why is there warring, whether it's between sexes or even in a household or between nations? Why is there this huge tendency for strife and suffering? Because the problem is right in here. It's in our hearts. This rebelliousness, this warring, this wanting to get our own wayness. And for that to be understood, we need to go right back to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 3. That's where the wholeness, not physically, but socially and societarily, that's where it begins, because it begins in our hearts. When we turned our back on God, as Nick said, shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your rule. We wanted to be in charge. And Genesis chapter 3 tells us that that's where it began. That's why we long for justice, because we said no to God's justice. That's why we long for peace, because we said, God, we don't want peace, we want to go our own way, and it will never work. The minute Adam and Eve said no to your rule, the minute that happened, peace was lost. Peace with God was lost, first of all and primarily. And then peace between one another, between Adam and Eve, was lost. And then even physically, there was a disintegration, so to speak. And that's why we need the servant to come. That's why we long, like Israel, for comfort. Chapter 40, verse 1. 
We long for God to do something. We long for justice. We long for peace. We long for restoration. We long for bodies that don't break down. We long for new bodies. We long for hearts to stop aching. We long for a servant king to come who's a healing king. But what's he going to do? Is he just going to mend us physically? Verse 7 says, yes and no. This king who's going to come and heal so tenderly and compassionately, this king who's going to establish justice, well, be careful that you don't read into a division here. Verse 7, this king will come and he will open the eyes that are blind. Aha, that means spiritually blind. It means people that are in darkness. He's going to open eyes. No, no, no. That means people that physically have uh, ailments and physically are blind. It means that, not the other. He did it both, friends. You read the Gospels and the Lord Jesus, when he came, when he came and brought just a taster, a foretaster of shalom and global peace and restoration, the kingdom of God on earth. When he came, he did it all. So don't bring in a division of physical restoration. It's now and not yet. But spiritual restoration as well is possible in its whole. Now, what does that mean to you and me? If we become a church that follows the servant king and the healing king, what does that mean to you and to us as a church? It means that we need to understand and live in the tension of this paradox between now and not yet. It means that we need to grow, and I long that we would do it even more than we are yet, into a church that's loving for those that are oppressed. We are loving and careful and mindful of those in our neighborhood and on our streets that don't have enough money, that are living on the breadline, people that are without employment that would long it, people that can't work and they're not going to be able to work in the future. Those people that are bruised and battened and beaten, we never look over the top of their heads. We never look above them. We want to look them in the eye and think, how can we bring the love of Christ practically into their lives and experience? Number one. But it also means, lest we only do that, that we're excited about evangelism. If this is true, verse 7, that God is going to come and he came as the servant king, Jesus Christ, and he's going to deal with physical ailments, he's going to deal with creation care, he's going to deal with social justice. We need to be very, very interested in that, but not alone. We must be excited about sharing the good news that beyond our physical needs, there is an even greater need that's spiritual. And Jesus Christ came so that blind people could see. And I'm blind and he's made me see. And most of you are blind, some of you still are, but Christ can make you see because only Christ can heal the brokenhearted. Not one or the other, both. Because Jesus Christ is the servant king, but he's also the healing king. But thirdly, he's also the suffering king. He's also the suffering king. Servant king, the healing king, the suffering king. As we journey through these songs, as we journey towards Easter, we're going to see more and more detail about this third point. Jesus Christ is the suffering king. There's a hint in verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Verse 4. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establish justice on the earth. Now, eyes down. Do you know what the word falter is? It's the same word as in verse 4 for snuff out. 
Do you know what the word discourage is? It's the same word as bruised. The point being, the very things that we experience, the bruising of life, the suffering of this world, this servant is going to experience that in and of himself. If you're a grammarian, it's a transitive verb becoming an intransitive verb. Forget those big words. It just means what happens is going to happen to this person. Suffering is not out there to this servant suffering healing king. He's going to take it on himself. That's what it means. How is that going to happen? This suffering king, this healing king is going to be bruised himself. He's going to be crushed himself. He's going to be damaged himself. But it won't stop him bringing justice to the earth. In fact, it's the very means by which he'll do it. This uh, theme of bruising fascinated me when I was writing this, and I got thinking in my brain. Where else do you see this word? It's there back in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, with all the darkness that's happening because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve, there is a shard of light. There is the beginning of the gospel promise. That God speaks a word of defiance, in a way, to the serpent. And he says, this is what I'm going to do to you. This is what my offspring will do to you. You will try and do your best, but I've already got a plan. Justice has been lost. Peace has been lost. Well-being has been lost because Adam and Eve have decided to go against my loving rule. But in this mess, there's a shard of light. Because God says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I'm going to give to Eve, I'm going to give to Eve a seed, a descendant, and he's going to come along, Satan, and he's going to crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. It's that word again. This servant king, who's the healing king, will also become the suffering king. And for years, I don't think I made that link from this passage back to Genesis chapter 3. Bruising, it's external, it's when blood, yeah, and so on. A little bit of pain, but it's not. This is talking about a death blow. This is foreshadowing and pointing to the cross in the third chapter of the whole Bible. Think about this image just for a moment with me. You're there with a group of friends. It's your family. It's a barbecue because it's spring and summertime, so we get out even if it's cold and we like the barbecue. All your friends are there, and a grass snake appears. Okay? A really big one with deadly poison even in Epsom and Newell. And the grass snake is there, and you know, because you saw Steve Backshaw or someone like that, that you could grab him by the tail and, because you're a loving neighbor, fling it over to the next door and be done with it. But you want to, uh, you know, ladies, you're, you're determined you're going to do something, and men, you're determined you're going to get your wife to do something. And uh, you go up to it, and you want to stamp on its head. But if you go up with your foot and stamp on its head, you know that in all probability you're taking a huge risk because in stamping on the snake's head, it could bite you in the foot. It could bite you in the heel. And were that to happen and say it had deadly poison, it would be a death blow for you, but you would save your family. Isn't that a far-fetched illustration? No. Not when you get to Isaiah chapter 53. When you get to Isaiah chapter 53, the fourth servant's song, you hear very famous words. But he, speaking of Jesus, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised. He was crushed 
He was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus Christ received the death blow. It's predicted there in Genesis chapter 3. It's mentioned here about the bruising. And it's there again in Isaiah chapter 53. And Jesus Christ is saying, the servant king, the healing king, the suffering king, I will be bruised so that I will take all your bruises and deal with your bruises. I will be crushed so that one day you will no longer have to be crushed. So familiar to us if we're Christians, but so wonderfully true. Jesus Christ went before the heavenly bench. He took the rectifying justice of God. He got what we deserved. The judge was there, his own father. And all the justice of God, the wrath of God, at our own sin, not his own, was poured out on his beloved son, on this king. He took, he took the rectifying justice so that now he can sort out primary justice in the world. Now justice can flow like rivers to the ends of the world. He took our bruises so that now, whether your bruises are on the outside or on the inside of a broken heart, no matter how beaten up you are, no matter how needy you are, no matter what a mess you are, instead of Jesus Christ smiting you, you can now be made whole and receive the Spirit of God because Jesus Christ was smitten on our behalf. He was crushed on our behalf. He was bruised not just on the outside, he was crushed. He was annihilated, so to speak. He received the justice of God that we deserved so that now he can deal with our bruises, now that he can deal with our sin. And he's done it at the cross. Friends, there's nothing your heart needs more than to grasp this afresh as you journey towards Easter. So familiar for Christians. If you're not yet a Christian, this is the most wonderful time of the year to become a Christian. Every day is great, but Easter is perhaps even better. And there's one thing you need more than anything else. And I think it's to hear the words of verse 1 again. These words are famous. They're heard by Jesus as the heavens are rendered, ripped open at his baptism. Here is my son whom I love, I delight him. But friends, you and I need to hear, if we're Christians here this morning, the words of the king of the heavens, who says, just as I delight in my son, if you've placed your faith in him, if you trust in Jesus, I delight in you. And because you're in Jesus, I delight in you, friend, with all your bruises and brokenness and mess, as much as I delight in my own son. And that is a remarkable truth. I delight in you as if you've done everything that he did. I enjoy you. You bring a smile to my face, so to speak. I enjoy you. When you grasp that again, that's the medicine that will deal with your bruised and broken heart. One day he will come down and all the primary evils will be sorted out. One day there will be no more death and injustice, no more suffering and tears, no more sadnesses. Why and how? because he was bruised for us. He was crushed for us. He took the bruises of the serpent. He got the poison of the curse, all for our sake, and so that his Father's glory would be made much of. But go, go back to the doctors with me. When you go to the doctors, these remarkable creatures, they prescribe medicine, so I'm told, differently, depending on your gender, depending on your age, depending on your weight, loads of different factors that they need to think about. If you've got different allergies, they give you different drugs and whatnot. 
They do their best to give every single patient exactly what they need to the best of their ability. And they do a great job. But sometimes the best thing a doctor can do is to give you a little bruising for your good. They call it surgery. It's uh, bloody and awful. So they, they knock you out and uh, there's blood everywhere and you're on the table, you're on the slab and they do their worst so that you could know the best, so to speak. They do a remarkable job. But sometimes the best thing a surgeon can do is to make you feel better is to make you feel worse for a while. Friends, I don't know all of what you're going through, but it's my job this morning to say, put yourself in his care because he's the servant king and he's the healing king and he's the suffering king. And he knows exactly what you need every day of your life. And he will never fail you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its richness. Thank you for its truthfulness. And I do pray very much for anyone here this morning that's not yet a Christian, help them to take the step of trusting you afresh. There's no one else that uh, we can truly build our lives upon. There's no one else that will accept us as we are. But you do because of Jesus. And we thank you that you're the healing king that can deal not just with us physically. There'll be things we have to live with until you return or until you call us home. But you have everything we need to deal with us spiritually right now. And I pray very much for friends that have been Christians for decades. That as we journey towards Easter, that it would not just be confusion about chocolate, but the wonder of the cross, the glory of it, will be seen and enjoyed and celebrated like never before. Amen.